Uh, thank you guys uh, so much. It's always an honor and a privilege to be able to speak um, at any 12-step meeting. I always, always like to start my talks uh, with a prayer that I uh, be of service to this meeting and to these people who are in attendance and that I get out of the way. Um, what I'm going to do uh, for this session is I'm going to tell my story and then I'm going to do a little bit of a workshop and then we'll open it up at the end. Um, I need to say that I'm feeling extremely uh, watery this morning, which is my word for um, the emotions are right on the surface. And I intentionally have uh, navigated this morning in such a way that I stay watery. Um, I want to stay vulnerable uh, for you guys. I um, The magic of of 12 step is our vulnerability and so this is probably my fourth or fifth and hopefully last um shame workshop i think that i've done my part and people are now doing shame workshops and i can you know let this go um when i tell my story i want to tell it through the lens of my relationship to shame so for newcomers um if you're new to 12 step one of the things that can keep you from recovery is comparing so what's really important is to listen for the sim similarities I'm going to go into the details of my story and I don't expect you to identify with maybe the events but maybe you can relate to my feelings and how I felt. Um, and then hopefully my journey uh, through the recovery process will inspire you enough to go to one more meeting. If that's all I do, that's all I need to do. So um, uh, I, I I kind of, you know, Alice, please keep me on track. I don't want to spend too much time on this part, but it is critical to this, to my, to what the second part of my talk, which is, you know, why I needed um, to use the inventories to heal shame. So since I'm going to speak through my, tell my story through the lens of shame, I want to give you my personal definition of shame. There's a lot of definitions out there. But I feel that I can break shame down to the phrase two words, less than. I feel less than. And then here's my uh, favorite analogy for that. The first time I did a, a, a much more of a deep dive uh, shame inventory. Um, up in Spokane or wherever it was. So I want you to imagine a store, a regular retail store, um, something nice, something mom and pop, you know, not uh, not a chain, but a real kind of nice store. Well, I can tell you right now, having done nothing in retail, that the store is divided into three sections. The first section is the window display. And that is where they are going to display the best of their products, which is what will get you into the store. The bulk of the store will be those products, you know, not necessarily the best, but, you know, some variations of those products. And if you go to the back of the store, that is where they will have their reduced products. The products that they have decided are worth less than the products up front. And my body image dysmorphia um, categorized myself in that kind of paradigm. That there were people who were perfect and valuable. They were average 
people, and then there were people who uh, were not so great. This started in high school around puberty, and I actually had a grading system, which was like beautiful people were A's and B's, B pluses maybe, you know, pretty girls were B's, not ugly girls were C's, ugly girls were D's, and then deformed girls were F's. Like I had that in my mind. Um, I was raised by a beautiful uh, woman who had modeled a little bit, hometown modeling, but still, someone asked her to model. Um, and she was part of the, she was a cheerleader. Uh, her boyfriend was captain of the football team. Uh, her best friend was homecoming queen. She was on the court. That was my mother. And she very much believed that her whole worth was based on being desirable to the male gaze. She was raised that way. I come along and um, I don't look like my mom. I don't take after my mom's side of the family. Um, they're all 5'1", and they're very curvy Vargas girls. I'm 5'7", I was a tomboy, and I'm one of those daughters that look like my dad. And there's a whole comedy sketch about daughters that look like my dad. You know what I mean? And that's, um, that's what was going on for me. Uh, my mom uh, was a cheerleader who then uh, became an aerobics instructor and made, turned her cheerleading ability into a profession. When Jane Fonda came out with her video, my mom did it and didn't even break a sweat. I have a picture of my mom in 1980 leading an aerobics class and everyone is wearing cut-off jeans because they hadn't marketed athletic wear yet. That's who I grew up with. So the message that I got very early was that my body was not okay. Um, my mom was genuinely afraid for me and I picked up on this. She was afraid that no man would want me and that I wouldn't find a husband. Now the fact that this was not even on my radar didn't matter. You know, my mom was constantly trying to fix me. Then what happened is puberty hit. This is all around the same time. Well, uh, I grew up in a middle class alcoholic home with two alcoholic parents. So my, I was raised to think I was better than other people. Um, my dad was the son of a colonel, and if you know anything about military, I just told you that my, son, that my dad was the son of a duke, and that's, that's still what my family believes, you know, is they are part of the upper echelons. And then, like I said, my mom was a pretty girl, so being told that we were better than other people was also part of my story. So I didn't, so as I'm internalizing this shame because of the alcoholic home, my mom being concerned about the way that I looked, then puberty hitting and watching my friends, be, and I was a tomboy, become interested in boys. Number one, my world was falling apart because the alcoholism was progressing. I was not prepared to suddenly change the game. And here's what it felt like. It felt like we were all out on the playground playing, and then all of a sudden the next year we come back, and it's all about the dance floor and who's going to get asked to dance. And I was like, what the fuck happened? 
You know, why aren't we all out on the playground just playing, just being kids and just enjoying each other? Now, all of a sudden, I've got to start wearing makeup. I've got to, like, worry about who likes me. You know, and again, I just was not ready for this. And I was not ready for sexuality. And how I dealt with that is I did two things. I read books all the time and I ate. One of the things that I had that saved my life was that I was smart and I could fall back on my academics. My academics, I went to a special school, I got into UC Berkeley, so I had this other thing that told me that I was better than. The reason why I'm focusing on this is because my how my shame manifested itself is through arrogance. And a lot of people don't understand that arrogance is the result of shame. So going back to the store metaphor, I, if I am in that store, I think that I am part of that resale, discounted, damaged, good section. And I can't let myself think that. So I can't think that I'm one among many because anytime I think that I'm one among many, I get insecure. And I can't let myself feel insecure. So I now am like fixated on being in that display window. Who do I have to be to be in that display window? Who do I have to be to be perfect and how do I get there? And that is completely shame driven. So I gained and then the horrible thing is, is that as much as I'm reading magazines about body image and all of that stuff, I'm eating and I'm gaining weight. That was my story. So um, my house was also not a safe place. And so I needed the weight. I wanted to put on the weight because it desexualized my body. Some part of my brain knew that fat girls did not get sexual attention. So now here comes this tension where I want to be validated, but then the but I'm not prepared for this any sexual activity. I, I can't handle it. So then I eat for comfort and then I gain weight to desexualize myself. So then I get this negative um, comments and attention that reinforces my mother's story that I'm less than. I mean, it is a garbled fucking mess. So then I, I tried dieting for a little bit. I was not a chronic dieter. I tried it for a while, I think through my teens, failed. Every time I started to lose weight, I would get compliments and it would freak me out and I would gain the weight back. So I thought, I was like, all right, I'm just going to be the fat girl. That's what I thought. Um, because I believe in a power greater than myself, that power guided me into my first 12-step program, which was adult children of alcoholics. And um, I was blessed that this recovery began for me in 1993. I was 23 years old. So OA was not my first program. Like I said, I was just going to, I was like, all right, I'm the fat girl. Now, how much time do I have left? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay. So... So I join OA... And like most people, I came for the vanity. It's been a long, so I came for the vanity and I started to lose the weight. For me, it was a very, very slow process. I lost 10 pounds every two years because I had to adjust emotionally to being in a smaller body. I had to process every fat cell that I was getting ready to let go of, it felt like. I also had to get to a place where 
I was happy at that size and if I never got any smaller that would be fine and until I got there and you can't fake that I would not release any more weight so I had a very successful um, beginning OA journey I got down to my smallest weight and when I did I started to have body memories of um, incest thankfully not from uh, my dad from an extended family member which now I understand made puberty even more terrifying again not ready to handle that I already had stories of people trying to molest me I didn't need more and so this was my first major relapse I had gotten down to my smallest size um, I had a brief stint of anorexia not physically so much as completely losing interest in food and not wanting to eat um, fortunately I was in the rooms and thank God for the anorexics in the rooms because when it manifested I was able to call um, an anorexic in my home group and she was able to sponsor me through that um, and I came and I worked my program and I came out of that and I started to uh, get better and then what happened is my life started to become uh, bigger than my wildest dreams and I, I in hindsight I had a huge shame attack and I broke my abstinence on purpose I did not deserve recovery I did not deserve to have a life beyond my wildest dreams and so that is when I thank God through my recovery muscle through my smart feet through the resources available to me through a um, woman in Alcoholics Anonymous um, sharing her recovery uh, I was able to focus acutely and directly on the shame I um, read a couple of books by uh, members of Alcoholics Anonymous on shame um, you can talk to me about that uh, later it's also on my uh, site that I'm gonna uh, give you guys I did a shame study and I did a shame inventory um, and just like when I did the first my first four step and I'll get into the mechanics of this in the second part the shame inventory was just as healing and just as revelatory I then um, started to take my sponsees when we did the four step I added the shame inventory um, and they also found it uh, equal to the four step so now I when I take my sponsees through uh, the four step they have the four sheet they have five sheets and again we'll we'll talk about that in the second half I uh, started doing shame workshops and I started uh, helping people start a shame study group that's why I'm saying like I think this is my my final you know I've done I've, I've done my service thank you Alice for asking me um, so I'm gonna shift now because of the time constraint and starting late I didn't really get to uh, talk too much about my story but hopefully maybe it'll just weave in when we go into the second part so for I really want to talk to the newcomer because I, again I've, I've been doing this for a really long time and the fourth step is what people are afraid of the most newcomers because they don't understand and I have watched so many women leave because of the fourth step so um, 
But without the fourth step, we cannot heal the shame. So I'm going to talk about it in general terms. The fourth step covers the original fourth step that I had to do. Well, the very first fourth step I did was in the workbook. It was, yeah, that was great. That didn't particularly speak to me. Um, when uh, in my uh, 30s or whatever, I, um, for another story, I got an AA sponsor to sponsor me as a sugar addict. She treated me like an alcoholic. And I had to do the AA program. And I had to do the what we call the Joe and Charlie sheets, which are straight from um, the big book. So there are four of them originally from the big book. Fears, resentments, harms, and then sexual harms. So sort of, even though harms and sexual harms, it's kind of separating out you know, your behavior towards the world around you, anything that you've harmed others, and then particularly your romantic relationships or sexual relationships, sort of separating those out. So for the newcomer, I work with a sponsee. As we're working steps one, two, and three, I am developing a relationship with them where I am assuring them that I am a safe place. I'm assuring them that I have a sponsor and that I am not running around unattended. I'm also letting them know that I am not a therapist. I'm not a professional. I am a woman who had another woman guide me through this process. And as a result of that, I've had profound healing on my shame on my eating disorder and I am free today one day at a time of um, my uh, all of my compulsive eating behaviors so I am establishing a safe place with her and same thing that I did we're gonna go through you know what are you afraid of now the thing that's really important is that I tell my sponsor what I don't tell anyone else because this is a disease of isolation. So what keeps me separated from uh, what keeps me separate from other people is that I am not his not in the past, not today. I don't do this today in the past. What kept me from other people is I never really shared who I was with other people. I had a very good front. I told stories that reinforced this image of who I was, but I never shared my deep thoughts with you. And sometimes I didn't share them with me. I didn't even let myself know the thoughts that I had about myself. Like I said, I came from arrogance, not from doormat. Um, so the disease because of this distance where i'm not sharing with you and i'm not being vulnerable every time you try to tell me that you love me that you like me that you want to spend time with me i hear you i know you think you're telling the truth but what i know is you don't really because you love what i'm presenting to you and if you really knew me, you would leave me in a hot minute. And so my whole job is to make sure that you don't. But what does that mean? That means I am fucking alone on this planet. I am so alone. And so what do I need to comfort these feelings of solitude and isolation? I need my food. I need my food. If I have my food, my food has been there for me since the beginning. Since the beginning, my food has been there for me. It is my best friend. It will never let me down. 
Now, that it reinforces my shame, small price to pay, I think. You know, that it keeps people away from me, oh well, you know. That's why I think of my eating disorder as a domestically violent relationship. One of my sponsees and I talk about, you know, it's pretty common to name your eating disorder Ed, E-D, Ed. So she sort of, I told her that my Ed is an Irish mafia rugby player. We, I even found, I even Googled a picture, poor Rob Kern. He has no idea that I've like stolen his image and I'm like this guy right here. Because the feeling that I have when I have my food is that I am safe from the world. Just like a domestically violent partner, my boyfriend will fucking kill you if you try to mess with me. He, he will throw the first punch. He is not afraid to take you down. Now, that he controls every aspect of my life is a small price to pay. So, I'm a little distracted. So that's my eating disorder. I got distracted. Um, what was I talking about? I was talking about Ed. Alice? You were talking about um, it being an abusive relationship. Shit, right. Oh, right. So that you don't, you don't uh, know who I really am. So what I, so that's why step one is the principle of honesty. I have to talk about what's true. I have to start to talk about my eating behaviors. And so again, my step one with my, with my sponsee, and we're moving to the step four, which is going to start the healing the shame process. Steps one, two, and three, yes, I'm working with her, yes, I'm trying to like, do you believe, are you powerless over your food addiction, your anorexia, your bulimia, your, do you recognize that you have tried and tried and tried and failed? Yes. Do you believe the possibility exists? Just the possibility, even if it's one in a trillion, the possibility exists that you could be free from your eating disorder if given the opportunity. Yes. Okay. That's all you need. Now we're going to move forward. We start to do the fourth step. This is where my sponsee or me to my sponsor, I will start to say things that I have never told anyone. And the woman that I'm looking at will say, me too. And that is why Anne Lamont calls 12 step the church of me too. And suddenly I don't feel like I am an ogre and I am the only one. The other thing that starts to happen through the four step process, and we will get into the sheets, is I now have told this woman, and I've had a couple of amazing sponsors, everything about me that I am absolutely ashamed of. And she still loves me. She still thinks that I am an amazing person and she is congratulating me on surviving, getting myself into recovery, doing grueling work and taking it just one day at a time. And through that process of the four step inventory, and then again, I added the shame inventory, I start to get relieved of the feeling that I am not enough that I am less than. I start to feel that I am just one among many and that there are many women who feel this way. I'll tell you another little story. I was, uh, I, I love Beyonce, who doesn't, right? I'm in a meeting, but I'm not a f fan. I don't follow pop, right? 
So about five years too late, I learned that her husband cheated on her. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And here's why. Because my perfectionism was, if I'm perfect, I will be safe. I will be safe. I will not be rejected. I will never be a social outcast. I will never not be loved. And somewhere in my brain, I thought Beyonce was as close to perfect as this planet offered. And so when her husband cheated on her, it blew my mind because perfect doesn't keep you safe. And then it made me realize why I was seeking perfection because I wanted to be safe. So again, I needed to recognize that not being perfect did not mean I was less than. It meant I was human. That's what it meant. So now I'm going to go into the four-step sheets um, and kind of, you know, explain them a little bit. Uh, I, I have the link that I will send and how each one kind of helped eradicate the shame that I had. So let me, I, let me try this. Um, share. Okay. Can you guys see? Yeah. Thumbs up. Okay. So here are the sheets. These are straight from a Joe and Charlie workshop. So, and here are the columns straight out of the big book. What do I fear? I list people, institutions, or principles that I fear. Here is where I write down all of my fears. And what motivates me to tell things that I am like I would go to the grave for is the phrase, how free do you want to be? So the freedom that I experience from the disease is directly proportional to how truthful I am, how honest I am, and how, how much I get out of isolation. So again, using that domestic violence metaphor, starting to tell at least one person what is really going on at home, right? How I really feel. Yes, the world thinks that I'm a strong, confident woman, and I am all those things. I'm also more than that. So here's like, who, what do I fear? I list people, institutions, or principles that I fear. And the thing that is, is important is the institution or the principles. You know what I mean? Uh, principles that I don't agree with. You know, you can think of it that way. Why am I afraid? What's going to happen? What, what do I think is going to happen? Now, I don't censor myself. I don't not write it down because I recognize how ridiculous it is. That's not the point. The point is, is that I am telling someone the truth. Hopefully my sponsor that I've, for me, it was my sponsor. I hope it's your sponsor too. Um, but, you know, and what does it affect? How does this fear affect my life? How is it part of the control that my eating disorder has on me? Now, what's my part? This is often the hardest part. Um, I added in this sample the ones that came up for me the most about my fears. I let my path, my part with this fear is I'm letting my past experience control my present perception. An experience I had in the past is determining how I see my future. So an example of that would be like, if I got into a car accident 10 years ago, 
And so every time I got into a car, I had a panic attack. Like I'm not healing the experience. I'm not having faith that that experience taught me to be a more cautious driver. You know, taught me to be a more defensive driver. Where had I been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened, inconsiderate? Now, often when I'm working with a sponsee, they have a lot of trouble with these last two columns. I tell them, do your best. Do your best. When we do the fifth step, I will help you see this part, just the way that my sponsor helped me see this part. And then hopefully you will have a shift in consciousness or awareness which then will lead to more healing and more recovery. All right, so this is this worksheet. They're pretty much all the same, but I'm going to go through them. So actually, I, I want to do... I personally, even though we started with fears because it was at the top, I personally have my sponsees start with resentments. Here's something that I do that is outside of um, normal cadence. I was a woman's studies major. I studied a lot of feminist theory. The one thing I know is that women are not allowed to be angry and that we turn our anger onto ourselves. So what I have my sponsees do is they start with this worksheet and they do not have to do these last three columns. They only list everything they're angry about and the why. They don't have to look at their part. Women are grilled to, to own things that are their fault that aren't their fault. Also, I think that women need to be able to express their anger and just get to be angry. So first, I give them this first, I say just do the first two columns, and the way that I direct my sponsees is I'm like, I want a thorough moral, I want an exhaustive list. I know some people are like, no, just break it down. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want you to go down into that deep, dark basement in your mind, and I want you to look in all the corners, because we will never do a four-step this thorough again this is your big tome you know of your four-step inventory so let's make it count so who you're resentful at i don't have an example here but i could say um well i don't want to get into what I'm, i can say a lot of things that i'm angry about right now that i resent then again going into the cause so then we meet so again, I'm just telling you what I do. We meet, she just reads her resentments and why. Why she resents these people, what happened. And I listen, and I am a compassionate witness to what she's angry about. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I, we don't get into it yet. I'm just listening. After she has had a chance to express herself and express her anger and be heard and witnessed, then I will say, okay, now you've gotten to be heard. You've gotten to be witnessed. Now I want you to go back and I want you to finish these other three columns to the best of your ability. Um, I am resentful at, I don't, I'm trying to think of something that's neutral and I, and I can't. You could pick something. Why am I angry? Again, what part of self is affected? How is this affecting me? What did I do, if anything, um, to set this in motion? And where had I been selfish, dishonest? So I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that I don't have an example because this one was so illuminating for me. So I could say, here's an easy one. I am resentful at my mom. Why? She, you know... She wasn't very good at her job. Uh, what does it affect? It affects everything. It fucking affects everything. What did I do? So this is where I put, and this is a good one, expectations. I expected my mom to be a certain way. 
So I'm like, what did I do? I had expectations about who she was supposed to be and what she was supposed to do. And then when she didn't fulfill my expectations, I judged her and I judged her as wrong. Then, so that's, I can probably, I don't know if I can write in here. No, I can't. Um, so expectation, judgment, self-righteous. And then the last is, I'm holding on to this resentment. I'm holding on to it. So, and all of these apply. Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened, inconsiderate. Boom. So again, I will share this link to this drive, and you guys are welcome to explore. I have um, documents from all of my uh, workshops, presentation, homework assignments. So now let's go to harms. Same thing. Um, this is where I could say, well, I have an example here. Um, so these are the things, again, you think you know me. Well, guess what? I was a secret kleptomaniac. I was hardcore kleptomaniac. I had plenty of money. That wasn't a problem, right? So again, if you really knew me, you would not love me. So I start listing all the things where I have hurt people around me. Friends, relatives, I had to put my parents on there, you know, my brother. I had to put every, you know, stores, everything. What did I do to cause the harm? So who did I hurt? What did I do to cause the harm? What what does it affect? What's my part and where had I been? So my example is this poor girl, Jennifer Cardoza. We got into a fight. We're like in fifth grade. I had a guitar, guitar strap in my hand, coincidentally. I just had a guitar strap. She started the fight. I used it, and I slapped her in the face with it. I'm the one that got physical. What caused me to do this? Social instinct. What's my part? I was in fear and overacted with anger. I grew up with a family of people who were, uh, my grandparents were violently angry. Um, my parents, my dad would punch things, not us. And then when he was older, it just, you know, wasn't good. Um, so I have a temper that I constantly have to manage. Uh, where had I been frightened and inconsiderate? Same thing. So I want to kind of skate through the last one so we can get to the shame inventory. Sexual conduct. Oh, this one's so good. Oh, yeah. Same idea. But now we're going to get into my, my sex life, you know. And in a lot of what um, is these are all things that feed my shame. Because these are all things I'm not telling people about me. So the four-step inventory is about freeing us from shame. It's about telling someone else what you have done and hearing, I've done that, or I've done something like that, or I've done something way worse than that. I sort of joke with my sponsees. I you know, lived in Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, city of sin. And I'm like, I am waiting for the sponsee that can outdo me on harms. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you guys, you have nothing to worry about. Um, so I will often, when we're doing this, I will tell them first something that I did. I'm like, let me just put you at ease. Here's maybe like the worst thing that I've done. You know, I might, depending on the situation or one of the worst things that I've done. So let me just make you feel better about yourself. So again, who did I hurt? What did I do? And it affects my, and what's my part? And where had I been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? The thing that I really like about this, these worksheets, especially with this last column, 
is I really had to understand what selfish meant. I really had to understand dishonesty. I was not presenting my true self. I was not being true to myself. I was not sharing who I really was. I was manipulating you so that I could feel desired. I didn't want to actually be with you. I just wanted to be wanted. I wanted your validation. Whatever the the mess was, I got into with this four-step inventory, I learned about me and my unconscious drives and the things that I were keeping secret and the things that I wanted to be free of. I can't be free of something unless I know that I have it, that I want to be free of it. So this helped me to know myself in a safe container with a teacher, a leader who had gone through it too and was going to love me through the entire process. So now, now we get to the shame inventory. So there are 12 categories of shame. You can do a screenshot here if you want to jump ahead. But it's also, I'm, I'm going to give you the link here. So this was equal, is a different format, equally revealing. These areas, appearance and body image, 12 areas, 12, 12 categories. Category number one, appearance and body image. Two, money and work. Three, fatherhood, motherhood. Now, for those of us who don't have children, I used sponsorship. Or other people who don't have children are pet owners. You can use pet owner. So basically, you are responsible for raising something or you're parenting. Basically, it's something that so motherhood and fatherhood are really easy where other people can judge you, right? Same thing, how you sponsor, other people can judge you. You're not doing it right. Raising a dog, you know what I mean? Oh, your dog's out of control. So again, second is family. Oh, parenting. Oh, that's the parenting. That's the sponsorship that I did. So, oh, I switched that around. I'm sorry I confused you. Motherhood, fatherhood, parenting is where I did the sponsorship. I think motherhood, fatherhood, what I did was I thought, because I don't have kids, I thought about like my maternal instincts, something, or being an aunt. You know what I mean? The point is, is that I never ever skip over a category and go, oh, that doesn't apply, because I'm missing out on the opportunity to be free and the gifts of the program. So instead, I kind of look at like, well, how does this apply to me? You know, how can I use this? Well, I can use this in terms of my maternal abilities. I can use this in terms of me being an aunt and how I want people to see me as an aunt. Parenting is where I use the sponsoring. Um, and also I had uh, someone who didn't have kids, they used dog owner. Uh, mental and physical health, addiction, sex, aging, religion, surviving trauma, whatever that means for you, and being stereotyped or labeled. This is really important. So this is sort of, if there's any, you could, you could put being a woman in here. I mean, you know, you belong in some box that is being judged as a group. So that's kind of, you know, you can pick whatever, being Jewish, um, uh, be, certainly being a person of color, being BIPOC, being trans, whatever it is. And then these are, you know, you pick one category. So let's take appearance and body image. I think that's the one that I, yes. What are four or five of your ideal identities? How do you want to be perceived? You pick four or five of those. You pick four or five of how you do not want to be perceived. And then looking at your list of unwanted identities, for each response, you answer the following questions. Number one, what do these perceptions mean to me? These unwanted identities. Why are they so unwanted? And where did the message that fuel this identity come from? Messages. So here's an example. 
it's really easy for this group for OA to use appearance and body image. Ideal identity. I want to be perceived as number one, attractive. I want to be perceived like I take care of myself, like I have pride in, in how I hold myself and my appearance. I want to be perceived as healthy. I personally want to be perceived as having a basic fashion sense. I don't want to be seen as frumpy or sloppy at all. Here's how I do not want to be perceived. I don't want to be perceived as ugly. I don't want to be perceived as fat. I don't want to be perceived as frumpy and I don't want poor cheap quality clothes. I don't want to be perceived. These are things that are just in me. So you own this. Don't put what you think it should be. Put what you really what really fits you. So looking at my list of unwanted identities, I answer the following questions. Now, I didn't go through all of them, but I did ugly. ugly. So for ugly, what do these perceptions mean to me? Ugly means that I am rejectable. It means you can disregard me and view me as less than. It gives you cause to reject me, basically. Why are they so unwanted? If I'm ugly, you can attack me. You can disregard me. You can judge me as less than. Where did these messages that fuel this identity come from? My parents, the media, women's magazine, and fiction where the antagonist is always described as ugly or deformed. That's, that's pretty much. And then I went through fat, frumpy, poor, cheap qualities, did the same questions. And then I did that for all of these categories. And like I said, this inventory was just as powerful as the original um, four-step inventory. So I'm going to stop sharing. I am going to, do I have access to the chat? Yes, you should as a code. Okay, so before I forget, so that everyone can get to it, I am going to um, my retreat material folder has all kinds of good stuff in it from over the years. And there is a folder in there that says four step workshop and that is available to everyone. Okay, so uh, Thank you uh, for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me be of service. 